0: may be seated. Well, last week, you'll recall, we had a communion Sunday and covered Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, the institution of the Lord's Supper. In my preparations last week for that sermon, I came across William Hendrickson's commentary on that passage. In that passage, he, uh, in that commentary on that passage, he wrote these words. It was the desire of our Lord, therefore, that by means of the supper here instituted, the church should remember his sacrifice and love him, should reflect upon the sacrifice and embrace him by faith, and should look forward in living hope to his glorious return. Hendrickson went on to speak of this uh, trio of faith, hope, and love, and how we find them throughout the scriptures. And, And ever since then, it's been rattling around in my head. You know how sometimes when you maybe go to the movie theater and you get some popcorn and you're eating the popcorn, it's just so good with butter on it and everything, and it's just wonderful, but then you get that little husk of a kernel stuck in your tooth and you can't get it out and and it's just stuck there and it's there and it's there and and you keep keep thinking about it because it's there and you can't get rid of it that's kind of how this has been but only in a good way much better than that i've had this idea of faith hope and love just just stuck in my mind and and i've been thinking about how much i long for our church how it's my desire my dream my my wish my prayer that we would be a church marked by faith, hope, and love. And so I wanted to take this week to kind of examine these these three different uh, portions of the faith. Faith, hope, and love. I wanted to take some time. They, they often go together in Scripture, as I mentioned. In, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, we read that, remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. And perhaps most famously in 1 Corinthians 13, verse Thirteen. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is just a sampling. Uh, Many other places in Scripture we see these three items listed together, the three ideas interwoven one with another, and it would serve us well to consider these three qualities today. And as we do, I want to ask three questions of each of them. What exactly is this quality? What exactly does it do? And then finally, how exactly do we get it? So all told, we'll have nine points, I guess, because each of those three questions, asked of each of those three points. So before we get busy on that, let's turn to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness we thank you for the fact that you have not left us to wander in darkness, but instead have given us your word. Your word is truth. And so we, in your word, gain not just knowledge, but we gain direction. We gain a love and a hope and of faith through Christ Jesus about whom your word speaks. It's my prayer today that as we look at various passages of scripture and considering this trio of faith, hope, and love, that you might truly speak to us through your word proclaimed and preached, that the preacher might melt away and that you might through your spirit speak to our hearts that you might call us closer to yourself that you might mold us into the likeness of Christ Jesus and that we might truly be the people that you would have us be we ask this in Jesus name Amen well first of all faith faith, hope and love we're looking at Faith first, we ask the question of it, what exactly is faith? And I suppose as good a place to start as any other is a passage that we not too long ago looked at in our study of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 begins with these words, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Essentially, what faith is, is belief. In fact, the Greek words that stand behind faith and belief are actually one word. The word faith is, is the Greek word pistis, and, and the word believe for the verb is pistuo. They, they have the same root, they are cognates of the same word, they mean the same thing. There's behind that idea of faith is believing. And, and we hear the word oftentimes and in our current culture. People talk about a person of faith. And what they mean is somebody who has some kind of religious belief. But I want to be careful that we understand when, when the Bible talks about faith, it is not talking about any religious belief. It's not just talking about a vague religiosity. It's not talking about general spirituality. It is talking about a specific You see, biblical faith has as its object Christ Jesus the Lord. That's how it was not only now in the New Testament times, but in Old Testament as well. I appreciate so much what Randy had to say to us just a moment ago when he was talking about Abraham and how Abraham, we understand, lived by faith. He's listed along with Many others in that passage in Hebrews 11, all those people who walked by faith, even before they had seen Christ Jesus, before they had learned about the cross and the name of Jesus, they trusted in God. And we could truly say that they believed in Christ Jesus, that their faith was in Christ Jesus, for they looked to the cross as something that was out ahead of them. They believed in the promised Messiah who was to come, just as we believe in the Messiah who has come and will come again. Abraham might not have had all the, the language to put to it. He might not have understood all the details as we do, but let's face the facts. Who among us has a perfect faith, understanding all things in the Bible and all perfection? There is not one of us who is perfect in our knowledge, perfect in our understanding. And just as we are not perfect in our understanding, neither was Abraham. We've been blessed to have more revealed to us, but he certainly had faith. Faith in Christ Jesus, as the Bible tells us. So faith is is believing in the promises of God, believing in what he has told us but it's not just an intellectual assent. it's not just having a, a knowledge of certain things being true it goes deeper than that it is having a knowledge in such a way that it will propel us on to actions believing in the promises of god and acting upon those beliefs that's why james says faith without works is dead See, he's not saying that it is the works that save us, but rather if there are no works, then there is no faith. See, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, as the saying goes. And so it is that faith is a belief, trusting intellectually and with our heart in such a way that Compels us to move forward, to live out our lives in obedience to God, desiring that our lives might be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. Well, what exactly does this faith do? Well, we read in Romans 5 just a little bit ago, therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've been justified by faith, the word of God tells us. To be justified is to be made right, to be declared righteous. I just want to take a quick poll here. Who here is perfectly righteous? Raise your hand if you have no sin in your life. Me neither. How is it that God, who knows all things, could possibly declare us righteous? You know, I mean, my wife knows a lot about me. But she doesn't know as much about me as God does. And she could probably list at least three things that are wrong with me. Maybe four on a bad day. Surely God could come up with a laundry list, right? And yet, through faith, we are declared righteous by god it's not that we drum up this righteousness on our own it's not that somehow it comes from within but rather we have this righteousness in christ jesus romans 4 as randy told us tells us in verse 25 that christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification for our righteousness that's why he died. That's why he was raised. And in Romans 5, right after the passage that we read, it goes on to say, For the, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Anyone who turns to Christ Jesus the person who has three or four things wrong in their life or the person whose life is full of sin and nothing else. As he turns to Christ Jesus in faith, he is declared righteous by God. Righteous because the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus clothes that person. It absorbs the wrath of God so that his sin merits no wrath anymore. And he is truly before God declared as righteous. In Romans 4, it says that this is why his faith was counted him as righteousness. And as we heard, those words are not just for Abraham alone. They're for us as well. We can be made right. With God. What a wonderful thing. We can be right with God. Now, it's not just this justification. It said that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I think sometimes we just kind of think, well, of course we have peace with God. Of course, you know, God's a pretty good guy, and so of course he's happy with us. But That's foolishness. You see, because that's not our our natural state before God. We are are without Christ Jesus, without faith in Christ Jesus, at enmity with God. We are at war with God. We are his enemies. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us. For while we were enemies, we read in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were enemies. And yet he showed us his love. Yet he showed us his grace. He reconciled us to him to make peace. No longer being enemies with God, but now being at peace with him. I, I was thinking about uh, the fact that uh, former President Carter, you might have heard, uh, is, is undergoing treatment for cancer. In his brain, and and I was listening to the news as they were talking about him, and they were, they were just talking about his presidency and some of the high points and some of the low points and and such, and they talked about the the negatives. You know, the the economy was really bad when he was president. Of course, there was the Iranian hostage affair, which is a black mark on his presidency. Uh, and they said, but but what were the the positives? Of his president, and the thing he said that was probably the the highest point of his presidency was 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 the Camp David peace accords that he helped bring about peace between. Uh, Egypt and Israel this peace between enemies brought together and, and God has done a, a similar thing but, but is an even, even greater peace because it is an even greater enmity you know you think of the, the enmity that exists the strife that exists between Israel and other nations in the Middle East they're sworn enemies but, but our status as enemies of God was even greater even more uh, adverse to him more adversarial, and yet he has brought about peace through Christ Jesus. We were enemies, and he made peace with us, and beyond that, we see that we also have been given access to him, access by faith. It's in verse 2 of chapter 5 of Romans through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's pretty amazing to think that we are, by nature, enemies of God. He has made peace with us. and It would have been the greatest gift of grace ever for him to say, okay, you deserve my wrath, you deserve my condemnation, you deserve to be struck down, but what I will do is I will forgive your sin and I will... Be at peace with you, and you can just go your merry way, and I'll go my merry way, and we'll call it all equal and not worry about it anymore. That by itself would have been the greatest act of grace we could have possibly imagined. But God goes a step further. God not only makes peace with us, but He gives us access to Himself because He adopts us into His household. He makes us a member of his family so that we are his children. Consider the access that a child has. I love how one person put it that I heard. He says, only a beloved child can wake up a king at three in the morning and ask for a cup of water. Just imagine if, you know, the king's top advisors came in. Wake up, wake up. I'm thirsty. Off with his head, right? (laughs) But just imagine if some visiting dignitary came in. Your highness, your highness, wake up. You have any ice? But if a child comes in, a child of the king comes in and says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm thirsty. That king will get him a glass of water. That is the kind of access you have to the king of the universe. You can show up at his bedside at three in the morning and ask him for a cup of water because you're thirsty. You can crawl up into his bed and say, Daddy, I'm scared. I had a bad dream. You can say, Daddy, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Daddy, I need you. And he will be there. And all this by faith. This is what faith does. Well, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. How how do I get myself some of this faith stuff? I'll take some of that. Well, that's the thing. It's not a matter of what you do. Ephesians 2 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift from God. You have not earned it in any way. You have not figured it out on your own. Consider the alternatives, really. I mean, just just stop for a second. If I've figured out this truth on my own, if I've figured out the gospel and kind of gotten my mind around it where other people were unable to, how could that possibly be if it's not because it's a gift from God? Well, I guess it could be I'm just smarter than everybody else. We'd like to believe that perhaps sometimes, wouldn't it? That, That we're smarter than others. But I'm going to be really honest with you all. There are people who do not know God, people who have rejected Christ to Jesus, whose level of intelligence far supersedes all of ours. So we don't figure out the gospel by being smarter. Well, maybe it's by being better, right? By, by not having so much sin in my life. You know, they've got so much sin in their life, and and that's what kept them from the gospel. But But... Me, you know, I kind of was a little bit more holy than them, and so I was able to figure it out. No. The exact opposite is true. God, Christ came to save sinners. Paul says Christ came to save sinners of whom I was the worst. The gospel is specifically for you if you are a terrible sinner. It is most wonderful for you if you are a terrible sinner. And so it is not our sin that that keeps us from knowing the gospel. You see, we know the truth because God gives us that knowledge as a gift. He sends his spirit into our hearts to give us life where we were once dead, to give us sight where we were once blind, to open up ears that otherwise would be deaf to his call. And we believe. We believe. Now, we don't get it by doing something with this faith, but like I said before, it will change everything about us. It will change what we do. You know, in, in Matthew 8, there's a passage. Uh, there's a storm, and and Jesus is asleep in the boat. The disciples are worried. They say, Jesus, wake up, do something. Jesus rebukes the storm, and, and the storm is gone and what does jesus say to them in the context of this he says to them not oh you of little courage or you of little understanding no he says you of little faith you see because they didn't trust god in the midst of that situation they didn't trust that even though they had jesus with them they would be all right but see, that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to trust in him, no matter what the circumstances may be. And that's what gives us hope. We turn our attention there. Faith, hope, what exactly is it? It's not just, again, like faith is sometimes misused by the world. Hope is too. We talk about hope just like it's a wish. I hope, uh, I, hope I get this, or I hope this happens. I hope such and such uh, wins the election. I hope that I get this for my birthday. I hope, you know, I hope, hope they're just, just wishes. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about hope. The Bible talks about hope as a confident certainty. A Christian hope is a living hope. First Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's it's a hope that's alive and it's a hope that brings life to us. This hope, uh, verse 4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It says that that this this is kept in heaven by you. It's guarded by God's power. Nobody's going to get at this inheritance. Nobody, Nobody can take it away from you. God is protecting it for you. You have a hope in it because you can be sure that you will receive it. It is a certainty. You needn't worry. You needn't doubt. That is what Christian hope is. And what exactly does it do? Well, it proceeds from faith. Galatians 5, verse 5 puts it this way It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It says, This happens by faith it proceeds from that and it confidently clings to the promises of God were we to look only to the horizons of this world and see what the future is going to bring i'll be the first to admit it's it's a pretty bleak vision i see i don't see a lot of things to be hopeful about on the horizon i worry about what the world will look at look like for my children and my grandchildren. Ah, but then, but then, hope kicks in. I remember the hope that I have in Christ Jesus and hope drives out fear. Corey Ten Boom put it this way. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Catch that, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You see, we don't know what the future will bring. We don't know the details. And as we look around us, it looks bleak, but we do know God and we do know his promises. He know, we know he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know that ultimately Jesus wins. And if we are with him, then we shall be more than victors too. Now, again, we don't earn this hope. It is ours by grace. But How exactly do we get it? How exactly do we go about it? What, what can we do? Well, we can remember those words that we spoke in Romans 5 earlier today. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, now, is that your natural response to tribulations? I mean, you know, I'm not sure we have enough money this month to make the mortgage payment. Glory! Man, my loved one is really sick and in the hospital. Yes! Man, the relationships I'm experiencing are, are, are breaking one by one, marriages family relationships, work relationships, they're crumbling all around me. Praise God! No, that's not how we respond, is it? But what Paul's saying here is, he says, even in the midst of those things, even in the midst of those great tribulations, we can still rejoice in the fact that we know that the tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope you see what he's saying is is that as you go through these difficult circumstances what you will find is god will be faithful he will be faithful even through these circumstances that seem so hard and so bad he will prove himself to be worthy of your trust you will find this true in your life. You will find it true in the lives of people in the Bible. You will see that even in the darkest of days, in the most terrible of situations, God will be present and he will be at work. Just like we said last week, remember? What was the most terrible moment, the darkest moment, the most sinful, horrible, vile evil moment in all of human history it is when a perfectly innocent man was hung upon a cross and murdered there and mocked and spit upon and left to die bearing the weight of the sin of the world and even there in that moment of greatest darkness God was at work he was at work bringing about his purposes for his glory, and for your good brothers and sisters. That you might be saved. And so even as at that moment it seemed the worst thing ever, we can look back on the cross and we can rejoice in it. We can rejoice in the cross for it is in the blood of Christ Jesus shed on our behalf that we have forgiveness for our sins. So we can remember in the midst of our circumstances that that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We can remember that God's hand is sovereignly at work in all situations and we can have hope. Now hope does not disappoint, we read in Romans 5, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. That's where we'll end today is with love quickly now what exactly is love? Again, it's a word that's misused by our world. Talk about just these romantic notions about feelings, flutterings in our heart. Not that those are bad, but when the Bible talks about love it's not just talking about emotion, it's talking about a state of being that, that is, is powerful and is is active. It's, it's something that's done. It's what God is. The Word of God tells us in 1 John 4 8. God is love and so he acts lovingly and it's a a requirement for us as well the entire law is summed up in two commands love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself we are called to love so what exactly does that mean what exactly does love do well first corinthians 13 that great love passage that we often hear at marriages but it's speaking not so much about marriages it's speaking about life within the church It's speaking how we should interact with one another, how we should should coexist one with another, and it says we should love one another. It goes on to say love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Things endures all things. Love never fails. How often does this characterize you? Is that how you are? I know I don't hold up to that description very well. There are times that I'm not very patient. There are times I'm not very kind. There's times I I am arrogant. I think I've got it all figured out. I'm sometimes rude. Sometimes I do insist on my own way. I know the right way to do this. Just do it my way. I become irritable. At times I'm resentful. At times I even find myself rejoicing in wrongdoing. I reject the truth at times. I fail to bear, believe, hope, and endure You see, I I don't live out love all the time. But that's what I'm called to. And I'm thankful for the grace of God that I can be forgiven of those shortcomings, and so can you. And we're not left to try to drum it up from within ourselves. How exactly do we get this love? How exactly do we do it? We don't have to, by our own strength, pull it up, but rather... Let the love of Christ Jesus flow through us, knowing that he has forgiven us of our sins, that he has shown us greater love than we could possibly ever imagine. Meditate upon what he has done and realize that to to the degree we understand how Christ has loved us, we will necessarily begin to love others. You see, if you're not loving others, that's like the first diagnostic that you don't understand the love of Christ. But as we do understand it, It will change us, and we will live in accordance with his commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. Faith, hope, and love. What would it look like? What would it look like if that was our church, a church of faith, hope, and love? I I think it would probably look like what Paul calls the church to in Ephesians 4, just in closing Let me read this passage to you, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Wouldn't you love for our church to look like that? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church that is like that? Well, you can be. And it begins with you. Meditate on what Christ has done for you know the great sacrifice that he has made for you, and then respond to him, trusting in him, in faith, hope, and love. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we realize that we have been blessed more than we can imagine Through Christ Jesus, you have made your grace known. And so we pray that you would help us to see that love more clearly. And as we see it more clearly, to exhibit it more fully. That we could be confident in the hope of what lies ahead of us. For we have laid hold to him by faith. We know whom we've believed in, and we know that he is faithful. And so it is that we rejoice in the name of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray.